Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today we'll be talking about a new report on the Energy Choice Initiative from the Gwynn Center. Our energy maven, Riley Snyder, will join for the questions. As usual, we'll close with some to and fro on some issues of the day between myself and the Indies Managing Editor, Elizabeth Thompson. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and elsewhere. Wherever you listen, go on that platform, subscribe and rate us, and tell everybody you know about Indie Matters. First, let's get started with some headlines from this week's Indies. Our Sunday package was highlighted by Jackie Valley's deep dive into the legal strategy MGM Resorts is employing that is a PR disaster. The company's decision to sue victims of the 1 October massacre has caused the gaming giant to be a social media target, but... Jackie's piece calmly goes beyond the obvious and shows why the strategy may have been essential, but problematic legally, too. We had a couple of stories about Adam Laxalt this week. Riley looked into the Attorney General's flip on so-called red flag laws since he became a gubernatorial candidate. He once compared the laws that allow law enforcement to take firearms from people deemed to be in imminent danger to the dystopian world of Steven Spielberg's Minority Report. Now... In the post-1 October world, where Laxalt skips an NRA convention, he wants the legislature to consider such laws. Michelle Rendells wrote about the two new ads Laxalt has up, going after Steve Sisolak, with one continuing his Shady Steve meme about him being a pay-for-play county commissioner, the other making him out to be the left of Bernie Sanders, and scarily so. The ads are very tough for July. I wonder if Laxalt polling is showing a Ryan Bundy surge. Humberto Sanchez, our man in D.C., and Michelle did a detailed piece on whether undocumented children separated from their families are being held in southern Nevada. Senator Dean Heller indicated so on the floor, but then refused to provide any proof or details. But other sources told us there are at least two. It's a must-read and wrenching story. Plenty more on the site this week, including a Riley scoop on an unintended consequence of a measure to regulate tax preparers, Jackie Valley's eye-opening piece on the ongoing workforce shortages here, and Daniel Rothberg's exclusive on a marriage between mining and renewables. Yep, you can see all these stories on the Nevada Independent site. We're a nonprofit news organization at the NevadaIndependent.com. You can also make a tax-deductible contribution there, too. We appreciate all of our support from our readers. We'll be back in a moment with Meredith Levine of the Gwynn Center. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. We're here with our guest, Meredith Levine. She authored an extensive report on the Energy Choice Initiative, which will be question three on the November ballot. Welcome to Indie Matters. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Reporter Riley Snyder is here, too. Hi, Riley. Hey, John. All right, so let me just start it off, and I'll let Riley do, do all the heavy lifting because he's read every word of this report, which is already an international bestseller, I understand. So let's talk about why you decided to, to, to do this. Obviously, this is a very important issue, but it's fraught with all kinds of complexities, uh, both substantively and politically. Why take this on? That's the exact reason to take it on. It is so crucial to Nevada for them, for the voters to be informed, for stakeholders to be informed on this issue. 
And if we're going to talk about anything, why not the most important one of the day? So talk about uh, why you're the person who did this. What are your give give people some insight who are listening and why Meredith Levine's the person to do this? Sure. Well, I am the director of economic policy for the Gwynn Center, and I write about issues certainly related to economic policy, governance, and this is fundamentally a question about restructuring the market. And so that was something that is just in my portfolio of interests. And I write about infrastructure as well, and this. This is an infrastructure question along with a governance question. You know, of all the issues I've covered in too many decades of covering issues, I think this is one of the more complex energy and markets. And Riley uh, has done a fantastic job in getting up to speed and, and trying to distill this stuff uh, for our readers. How did you see this when 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 you when you took it on? I mean, you have ex- expertise in the issues in the areas you just talked about, but is this some big amorphous blob that you're going to have to try to figure out? Did you think that you were going to come to some kind of conclusion about whether this was going to be good or bad for Nevada? Or did you not even consider that? I actually did not consider that. I wanted to learn about it. And I have to thank Riley for the fantastic reporting because that's where I started to learn about this issue. And for me, as just a personal uh, way of doing work, I don't have what some people would call priors or hypotheses about it. I want the data to lead me. And so I came into it and I said, whatever it tells me, it tells me. So before I let Riley uh, jump in here, by the way, I guess you're getting royalties from this report since she <laughs> started reading you first. Uh, give us just a general distillation. And, 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 and the report is posted on your site. It's posted on our site as well. So go to our site, forget the Gwynn Center site. Uh, but, but, but seriously, just give us a general distillation of what you found uh, on question three, which is the Energy Choice Initiative and I won't tell our listeners what I've written many times and I actually believe I believe this is the most important thing on the ballot beyond any race that's out there it's going to affect every Nevadan in one way or another what happens with this what generally did you find well, to start with, we found that this is a question, again, of restructuring, not a question of deregulation or re-regulation. So it's really a clear question of what's going to happen with Nevada's energy market and what is the will of the voters in that regard. So that's really the first, maybe setting the table around it. And then after that, really two primary findings. The first involves rate behavior. And what we would say there is there is no guarantee, despite messaging that we may have heard, there's no guarantee about the direction of rate behavior. And then the second point is regarding renewable energy, which is that we also found that there is really no relationship between a restructured market or not and renewable energy. Rate behavior means whether or not you pay more or not. That's correct. That, that's yes. wonk speak, right? Okay. That is wonk speak, <laughs> okay, yes. Riley, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And John you, or Meredith, you're, thank you again for coming on. Um, your answer reminded me of something that Mark Melman, a, a nationally recognized pollster who's done polls for the Nevada Independent in the past, said that a lot of times ballot questions will sort of be decided not based on the like what is actually in the ballot measure. They'll come up with like different um, topics to argue about and sort of sell it on. So... That kind of seems to be the case here, right? Because both sides of this have focused on rate behavior and whether or not it will affect renewables. And your report found both of those are kind of impossible to tell, right? Right. That's exactly it. And so when you look at it, there's certainly, again, messaging on both sides. And what we did in terms of approaching the report was to look at the two ways each side has positioned itself in dialogue with one another. And so there, that was where we came up with the idea of thinking about rates and thinking about renewables. And then either side has several other arguments that they've engaged with. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really impressed me about your report, it's like a hundred and something pages. I forget the exact number, but the actual report itself is 75. So like a good third of it is appendices and footnotes and all this. Can you give our, our listeners an idea of like 
what sources you went to, what sort of like legwork you did to put this report together? Right. So that's a great question, which is that we tried to be as diverse and broad as possible in researching this issue. And so we actually started with the EIA, the U.S. Energy Administration. Energy Information Administration data. That's something that we can discuss further because it is a key component of the report. But we started there as a federal standard source of data that we were hoping to use. And as it turns out in the report, that isn't something we use. So we wanted to broaden beyond that. And we talked to industry experts. We talked to public utility commissions. They go by various names, but in different states, the utility regulators. We consulted other federal sources and, again, some commission sources from around the country. We looked at the academic literature. We looked at the industry literature. So we tried to pull from as many sources as possible to give that informed, unbiased, objective analysis that we do at the Gwen Center. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in your report that I didn't know about was that if you look at the EIA, which is a federal agency, they say specifically, don't use our data for this comparison and Right. So I can help clarify that a little bit. So again, the thought was that we would use that data because most folks use it and having a federal standard around data is important and it's good to use it. So I had started to do some data work and then I actually said, let me get on the phone with the IA. And I got on the phone with the IA and they said, you know, our data is a proxy. It says that on our website. And if you consult our technical notes for the purposes that you're trying to use it, this is not something that we would suggest that you do. And that's when we really started to investigate the EIA data for the intents of looking at restructuring. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, when it comes to this, will just sort of use the term uncertainty as kind of like a cop out to say like, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. It's uncertain. But in a lot of ways, Nevada is unique if it does decide to go down this path of a restructured state. Can you talk about the ways, like the, the specific characteristics of this state, if it did decide to become a full restructured if this ballot measure passes, how it would be different from other states that have done that in the past? So where Nevada would be different would be in terms of participation in the organized wholesale market, which is, again, a kind of weedy way to get into the topic of that. But there would need to be some sort of administrative apparatus that's centralized. And we call these organized wholesale markets. They're run by independent system operators or regional transmission organizations. What you see in other states that have restructured is that the markets tend to be more Uh, population heavy and that they are more diverse in the sense of, or maybe I should say that they're more concentrated and that they're in population centers. So the example I'm thinking of here is PJM, and that is, for example, Pennsylvania, Maryland, etc. And when you have those populations in the Northeast, there's a lot, again, of concentration. In Nevada, we would sort of be, I don't want to say isolated, but we aren't currently, although discussions are underway, we are currently part of an organized wholesale market. And I think that that is one of, again, not to have the uncertainty cop out, but because we don't know what the organized participation would look like, we just really don't know what the implications are in a state with different population centers. So, but, you know, Riley uh, kind of glibly said uh, uncertainty cop out, but any way you look at this, it seems to me, there's uncertainty, whether it passes or whether it fails. In other words, the uncertainty of, of NV Energy's behavior 
after this. They've already obviously made some changes to try to seem more progressive, more more friendly to renewables, even though they would argue they've always been that that way. On the other hand, uh, if, if, if it passes, there's so many X factors uh, because there is going to be some kind of re-regulation imposed by the legislature, whether it'll be a light hand or, or a heavy hand. And I think that's why, you know, we're trying to simplify this for people. And I think in the first 10 minutes or so, I'm not sure how successful we've been. People want to know. They want to know if their rates are going to go up. They want to know if their lights and their air conditioners are, are, are going to go on. They, they want to know if this is good for the state or not. And no matter how good you are, no matter how many pages you spent on that, there are real X factors either way, right? That's 100% correct. If this question were not to pass, that doesn't mean we have a very certain market. I think we should be really clear about that. Certainly, there is a certain amount of exposure to wholesale gas. For just one example, regardless of what kind of model you have, if that changes, while Envy Energy as a dominant provider in the state can't profit off of fuel costs, they certainly do pass those on. So right there, you could say that Envy Energy there is some uncertainty there. What this does is bring a different kind of uncertainty, which is we don't know exactly the nature of the participants in the market. We can identify them as types, but we don't know who or the names of the persons or entities that would be coming into the market. And so Again, if it were to pass, it would introduce questions around who the participants would be and then how the legislature would implement this. There are implementation questions. Exactly. One other question before I let Riley jump back in. I guess your background partly is in economics. And I took one economics class in college and I had had enough and became an English major. But I guess what I ask, you know, generally people think, you know, monopolies are not good. Competition is good. Uh, if you have competition, you're probably going to get lower prices. I think that's generally the pitch of people pushing choice. Uh, or they say that Envy Energy is calcified. They've, they've never been really that progressive. You know, we know what this looks like. Maybe the devil we don't know uh, is better. But the economics of energy and the market are so different that the usual rules don't apply? Is, is that fair or not? I think that is fair. So if you think about a traditional market, and I don't mean a traditional energy market, I mean a traditional market, you're purchasing milk. There could be a constraint on supply, milk prices go up. That's Econ 101, right? But energy is fundamentally different because of the way it's delivered to consumers. Because of that, yes, this idea in economics is that monopoly is bad because you don't want to have a single supplier in the market because that person or entity can jack prices. And so nobody wants to see that. How electricity has been understood historically is what's called a natural monopoly. And the reason for natural monopoly is that there's a certain amount of investment or duplication that you don't want to happen. And it's actually the natural monopoly that has historically, again, been understood to provide the lowest price to consumers going almost against economic theory, but economists have supported this. What changes here or what could change here, I would say, is that under restructuring, one component would ostensibly be something that would be subject to the market and all the things that come with markets. And then another part of it would actually remain, as we understand it now, under a traditional regulated structure. And what that means is, is that Envy Energy has stated that they would remain the wires company. This is the infrastructure, the transmission, the distribution. If that's the case, then you still have sort of a 
a sense of one entity controlling one portion of electricity delivery and another that's open to the market. How that interacts with each other, we can only look to other states for some examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meredith, one of the things you mentioned in your report, um, which I think has come up quite a bit in just my own reporting and on people's perspective of this, is this whole debate over the term deregulation. I think the no on question three people love to throw that around. The yes on question three people think it's very bad to use that term. In your report, you say we shouldn't use the the term deregulation. Can you explain why? Absolutely. So deregulation actually, as we understand it, would mean the elimination of regulation from the market. And so the reason we don't like that term either is it's not a term that accurately reflects what would happen if question three were to pass. We're not eliminating regulation and we're going to go into the wild and everyone's going to be doing wild things, there would still be regulation. In fact, there would be new regulations that would be theoretically added, although the purpose of the ballot initiative, if you read the language, is to minimize regulatory burdens. That's clear language in the ballot initiative. At the same time, there would still be a role for the Public Utilities Commission of Nevada and for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And so it's not deregulation if you're introducing a new regulatory scheme. Mm-hmm. If uh, voters do decide to approve this in November, um, all of us are going to have a newly created constitutional right. Can you talk about that and why the um, decision to put this in the Constitution, um, I guess, presents new complexities that other states that have re-regulated or um, uh, gone to an open market um, haven't faced before? It is quite different. So what you saw was that every other state that has restructured its market did through through enabling legislation. The exception was New York. New York did it through regulatory order. And what makes this different is, I would say two things. One is that it does give a right to electric provision or electric utility provision. And so having that right isn't something that's been treated in other states. So in that regard, there isn't quite a model that applies because we don't know yet. That's for the legal folks to think about what it looks like to have a right to electric utility provision. And the other part of it is that we do raise in the report is that it does affect or effectuate the Constitution as a regulatory tool. It's a policy, and this would create a policy change through the Constitution. Now, again, for legal folks to decide if that's a good or a bad thing, but it does tie legislators' hands, in our opinion. I'm sure if the founders were around now, they would have included the right to choose your own electric <laughs> provider in the Declaration of Independence <laughs> or whatever. Um, but one of the issues with this um, that you um, sort of pointed out very expertly in your report is that by putting this into the Constitution, the state is kind of going to be in a bind when it comes to net metering, the program that people with rooftop solar panels use to basically make it worthwhile. It's when the utility will um, reimburse you for any uh, electricity you put back onto the grid, and then they'll give you a diminishing return for any extra that you put back on. And it's come up in the campaigns. You say in your report that net metering um, sort of as it works now won't continue to work as it does in a restructured market. Can you kind of expand on that and explain what's going to happen to the rooftop solar program? Oh, I would love to explain what will happen to the rooftop solar program, (laughs) but I think our report actually points a little bit to some uncertainty around this, which is that so the industry experts with whom we spoke shared that net metering could be called into question. And this has to do with In the last legislative session, the 79th in 2017, there was a bill passed that was AB 405, Assembly Bill 405. And what that did was 
essentially set rates for net metering customers. What the industry experts said is their concern is that the ballot initiative would nullify this law because there's a question as to who would actually be the provider of service. Now, the question then becomes, well, could there be a mandate from the state that would allow net metering customers to somehow be grandfathered in. And so for us, this is a question that we're not certain around and would be decided in the implementation process. Mm-hmm. And the the problem here is right that the Constitution is going to you know, overtake any law that they passed in the past. Um, but the, the, the I guess what I've heard from the pro yes on three people is that it includes a provision saying like nothing herein shall be construed to affect any policies of the state by that have to do with like renewable energy. So the idea was like just not to to deal with that, but intrinsically by getting rid of NV energy, like that creates just a whole new set of problems for folks who are in these net metering programs where you have to be in them for decades to make them worthwhile. Right. So, you know, it's in the ballot initiative petition. I believe it's, I want to say section three, A through C. That's very detailed, but it's worth reading because what you see is that there's a sense that generation of electricity needs to be competitive if and so this is kind of a a bit of a pathway if generation is designed to be competitive then at that point it raises a question as to can energy energy stay in the business now there's nothing in ab405 that says envy energy but what it does say is that the provider of electric utility service now again the provisions of the ballot initiative say that there should be nothing construed to abrogate the idea of renewable energy or energy efficiency that said we don't know until there's legal interpretation of it how those interact with one another so i would here just say we just truly don't know yet. And it doesn't mean, that, again, to be clear, that's not bad or good or that three is, you know, pro three is right and anti three is wrong. It's just truly something that needs to be worked out in implementation. You know, you know it seems to me, Riley, that maybe rather than writing 100 X pages of a uh, uh, report, extensive scholarly erudite report, you could have just written uh, uh, three words. We don't know. I mean, you keep, you know, I mean, yeah, and being only halfway facetious in the sense that I think our job as journalists uh, is the same, the same to some extent, the same as yours in the sense that we want to give voters information so they can help them make a decision. So I guess what I'm saying is, you're a voter. Let's assume, and I don't. I know you don't want to hear this. Let's assume not every voter is going to read your entire report. I, I know it's a, it's a horrific thought, but they're being. They're going to be bombarded by tens of millions of dollars in advertising, which is a terrible way to make public policy. Either way, in, in my opinion, because they're just they're using hot button issues. Oh no, we're going to become Enron, uh, etc. Right? You're a voter. You, you don't think about this stuff all the time, like 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 Meredith Levine does. What sh- what do you think? Uh, uh, and I'm not trying to get you to push voters one way or the other. What are, what what are the general things voters should be thinking about when they go to the polls before they cast a vote on this? Well, I would hear shill for our voter guide, which is a shorter version, and that's at GwynCenter.org. But no, beyond that's that, fine. that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. I think information like that is great. And say it again, GwynCenter.org. GwynCenter.org. Okay, good. And so that's one place to start. And I think that for voters, they have to ask themselves just a couple of central questions is, are they comfortable with the 
ballot initiative as written in terms of what it's doing. So again, not are you comfortable with the uncertainty or the potential outcome, but do you know what the ballot question is asking? And it's asking if you would like a restructured market. And so for the voter, it's to ask if this seems like something that would be, uh, I don't know, possible or interesting, or this is how they want to see the, their energy future in the state. I think that that's something for them to consider. And that's where I would really start with this is to ask, what is this asking? And what is my response when I hear this question asked? And that is, again, that's for the voter to decide. But is there an answer or a place that they can look to see this is the guaranteed outcome? Unfortunately, I can't say that there is. So Riley's written something about this, and it's come up a couple times in our conversation already. And I, I, I mentioned Enron because that comes up all the time in these discussions. But there have been experiences in other states that, that, that you looked at, that, that we have looked at. Which are instructive and which aren't? So I would say, and I'll actually do this because I'll say there are very instructive examples of where this can go wrong and where this can go right. And so let's look at Texas. Now, again, Texas is different. It has a larger population. It's got a different grid, let's just say. And so Texas works a bit differently. But the way they implemented the model is something that was really effective as people who you know, work in this area, understand it in the sense of how they transition folks to a competitive market and then how they deal with people who don't know that they uh, have choice or what happens if their service goes out. And so they've really worked around it. They created something called a price to beat, which allow competition to begin in the state. So Texas is really the model for how this can work well. The one that doesn't... Well, let, let me just uh, stop okay. before you yeah, go yeah. on to the one that doesn't. Let me just okay. ask you a question about what time you have saying they... Uh, do you mean regulators and legislators uh, to working together? They, they, they came up with a model that worked? I think a lot of it was in the enabling legislation for Texas, which was Senate Bill 7 in Texas. But they did delegate certain authority to their Public Utilities Commission. And so, you know, how much they participated in the process, I'm not quite sure, to be honest. But I would say that they did set a foundation that they were able to work on or together in partnership through the years to effectuate a good model. So it is really important, no matter what happens, how the legislature handles the re-regulated marketplace. That's going to be determinative of the whole thing, right? That is the most important right. question. Well, what's, what's a place where it didn't work? So a place where it didn't work is Michigan. And so Michigan really ran into some challenges. And I think part of it has to do with how they chose to, again, implement in the early stages. So this is where early implementation matters. Texas had a, a very early model of how they wanted it to look, and so that's how the legislators designed it. Michigan was a little bit more open to how it might look, and so what ultimately happened there was they didn't require the utilities to sell off their generation assets, and then there's this process where there's standalone companies for transmission and distribution, and they had to put in price caps that were so low that there was ultimately shock after those rate caps expired. And then at that point, 
at work or even prior to that point, there was a situation where competitive suppliers simply didn't want to come into the market because they couldn't compete with what the utilities were still providing. And so they just kept trying to get the implementation right. And one of the numbers we cite in our report is 40 regulatory orders around implementation in just one year. My goodness. Yes. And so ultimately, right now, residents do not have access by they technically do, but they genuinely don't have access to retail electric choice. All right, Riley, we have about three minutes left. It's all yours. Um, I am curious, and I think John asked a similar question, but I'm going to ask it better now. Um, <laughs> who uh, in the entire like marketplace of people who purchase energy, there's mm-hmm. retail, there's businesses, there's industry, who, I guess, stands the most to gain from a restructured mar- restructured market and who has the potential to like be affected the worst from a restructured market? So there's some question around this that we really tried to clear up in the report, which is that large customers, commercial and industrial, sometimes called CNI customers, advantage or are advantaged in this market at the expense of the residential or small commercial ratepayer. And so there is a sense that it's a zero sum game. And I'm going to just clarify it for you. Large customers will benefit in both types of markets irrespective of residential and small consumers. And the reason they can do that is they can hire energy procurement specialists and they have different voltages that the electric can be supplied. So those folks are going to do well, regardless of what happens. Where we had some question marks was around the residential and small business consumer. And the reason is because there tends to be a lesser understanding of how electricity works or how it's delivered and how to go about procuring it. And in those cases, we've seen, you know, consumer complaints where there's not a sense of how a variable rate contract works, right? So the question is, there is a potential in the absence, again, of implementation with very robust consumer protections where residential and small businesses might be disadvantaged, but again, not to the benefit of larger customers. Mm -hmm. You mentioned consumer education. I think that's like one tentacle of the many tentacles of things that will have to happen if this does pass in 2018. And we've mentioned this before as it relates to net metering, but essentially like the Nevada law on energy is going to have to be thrown out and rewritten in the next three legislative sessions. Uh, Can you give us an idea of like the immensity of of that work and how much it's going to take? I think it's going to take a lot if this were to pass. And the reason I think that is just, again, looking at other states, we provide counts to the extent we could. And a lot of them, interestingly enough, ended in 2002, so we couldn't get full counts. Uh, But going back to Michigan with the 40 regulatory orders in one year, they have a, I believe they have a full-time legislature. We have a part-time legislature. And so there would be a sense of that this would be a lot of work because you're undoing an existing market and you're moving to a new market and that has to be redesigned. And it's a 120-day session, three different sessions with different composition of legislators. I don't know what that looks like. Now, again, that doesn't mean because implementation is tricky that it's bad. It's implementation of a lot of things are tricky. But I would say that it could consume a significant portion of legislators' time. Uh, we are, we are uh, out of time. Uh, I think the only thing that's for sure is that I know where you're going to be in 2019, 2021, and 2023. What do you think? Are you going to flee the state? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> I am planning to stay in Nevada. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. You, it, 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 it's a great report. I'm glad I'm glad you, you put it all out there. And, and we, re- we really appreciate you taking the time to come on Indie Matters today, Meredith Levine. Well, well, thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciated the time today. All right, Riley, thanks for uh, rephrasing my question. 
questions to make them understandable to our listeners. That's what I'm always here for, John. All right. When we come back, Elizabeth Thompson and I will bat and bandy about some issues of the day, including this one. Stick around. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. I'm John Ralston, and joining me now is Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor, who is around to keep me honest. There's some reasonable approximation thereof. Hi, Elizabeth. Ha, ha, hi. <laughs> so uh, just, let's pivot off of the discussion that we just had uh, with the very impressive uh, uh, Meredith Levine, who wrote that report. And we talked about it a little bit last week, uh, Elizabeth, but we just posted a story right before this podcast uh, that we're recording, as usual, on Thursday with four uh, essentially renewable advocates, surprisingly, I think, to some, coming out uh, against energy choice, right? Uh, yeah, so the the no side of this issue is gaining, it seems to me, some momentum, more and more supporters. Uh, we've written a number of stories recently, right, in which I think your takeaway could be that, wow, the folks on the no side are starting to pick up some pretty strong support um, from some big names. I mean, the Sierra Club, uh, among others, is one of the groups uh, today that kind of join together these and are say not nobody groups. These are real. These are real. These are groups. real substantive groups with a lot of with a lot of members, and that's why it's powerful. It's not just the name of the group. If you have a big mailing list and you're in touch with voters and you're communicating with them, and you decide you're going to endorse or take a stance on a ballot issue, that's what really matters. I think that that Envy Energy uh, in the early going here has done a remarkable job of coalition building. I think we'd be be naive not to think that Envy Energy has reached out to these groups and some of the other ones, the Chambers of Commerce and others, uh, some labor folks that have come out against this. But I guess in the end... Uh, Elizabeth, it seems to me this is a little bit of of a, a tortoise in the hare kind, kind of thing, uh, wh- where the, the other side is just biding its time, hasn't spent much money, and this just goes on with just choice, choice, choice versus evil uh, monopoly, and they can still turn it around. Right, because you know the premise that competition is good in general and monopolies are bad in general is one that sells with voters across the political spectrum. I think actually you can certainly convince. Cons- conservative Democrats of that fact. Um, And so if the message is kept simple like that from the yes side, I do think they have a chance uh, of maybe maybe gaining back some of the traction that they may have lost in these recent weeks because they just haven't been up on television and they just haven't been out there with their messaging as much uh, as the no folks have been. I just want to say before we move on to the next subject in the spirit of uh, the indie uh, full disclosure, we have donors, uh, uh, and you can look on our page, on both sides of this, and I'm still convinced, uh, Elizabeth, someday Sheldon Adelson will be on that list as well. Uh, we welcome Sheldon Adelson's we support. Sheldon Adelson's support. Let's, have, let's just discuss one other uh, issue that has been in the news and that we had uh, another exclusive on uh, through Riley Snyder, which is that Adam Laxalt, the attorney general running for governor, appears to have shifted his position uh, on, on so-called red flag laws. What do we know about that? Let's explain what those are, too. In the simplest terms, a red flag law, which applies to gun policy, basically says, and, and this has come out of some of these recent uh, horrific mass shootings in which every person with a heart and a brain feels like, gosh, you know, 
we should have been able to do something to prevent this. Why didn't we? Surely there were signs that these individuals were somehow under mental stress uh, or having mental health issues or, or, or what the case may be. So these red flag laws, uh, as they're so-called, basically just means that legally we could start to take some kind of preemptive action uh, in which guns might be confiscated um, from a person if their mental health uh, is in question for some reason in order to protect attack the public. And uh, when he first talked about these uh, laws uh, a couple of years ago at, a, at an NRA convention, uh, Adam Laxalt essentially compared it uh, to the Steven Spielberg classic Minority Report, where so-called pre-crime uh, was prosecuted. You were you, you you were arrested before you even committed a crime. He pr- painted this very dark picture of it. And then in his report uh, from his own task force, uh, he essentially said the legislature should take a look. Uh, at, at these laws. Very, very dramatic shift for a guy who's gotten, you know, a triple plus from the NRA was one of their darlings uh, just a few years ago. What do you make of that? Well, he's running for governor now. Um, so he has a responsibility to take a look at public opinion. And I think public opinion on this is starting even among conservatives to kind of tilt towards the fact that, okay, no one wants to give up their Second Amendment rights nor their Fourth Amendment rights. And yet, if there is something we can do, even on a temporary basis, to prevent someone from possibly committing a crime and it saves lives, then shouldn't we be open to at least talking about that? I I think that's what Laxalt was saying. I mean, he didn't unequivocally endorse the policy, um, but he indicated that he's open to it. Um, I think that's a sensible and reasonable public position for him to take and also a wise one in the context of his campaign. Uh, that may be true. And, 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 and certainly uh, the gun issue, I think, is going to be fascinating to watch for the first time in Nevada in the wake of 1 October and in some of the things that you're talking about. I'm just wondering, uh, it seems to me that if you are going to say, I, I believe in the Second Amendment, which everybody says, what, what gun rights people often say is that it's a slippery slope. You start passing things like red flag laws, like background checks, whatever it may be, that that's just uh, the road to gun confiscation. And I think there are a lot of people in Adam Laxalt's base, especially in rural Nevada, who might not see it as, a, as you described it, a sound and sensible policy. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's valid as well. I think this will scare some people. Uh, I think he might stand to lose some support from the avid, uh, you know, gun rights people in the in the rurals. On the other hand, considering who he's running against and the fact that he's been just pounding Sisolak as a as a, a member of the extreme left wing and so on and so forth, that that you know, is he really going to lose support in the rurals? I mean, when the choice is between Laxalt and Sisolak, is this going to lose him votes? I think their calculus is that it won't. I think that yeah, I think you're probably right. And what'll be funny to watch in the general election is Steve Sisolak, who ran away from his one-time A minus rating from the NRA, will be bragging <laughs> about it in Ely and yeah. Elko and, and and places in between Vegas Arena. All right, Elizabeth, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming. Coming on. Uh, great to be here. Uh, that's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, yes, praise, email us at ideas at the nvindy.com. Please check out the site if you haven't already, the nevadaindependent.com. Rate us on iTunes and subscribe or Google Play or Stitcher, whatever mysterious podcast platform we have never heard of, but you can find us. I want to thank Meredith Levine again at the Gwynn Center for being here for that great discussion. I want to thank, as always, our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always, many thanks to our fantastic producer, Joey Lovato, who makes us all sound 
Podcast Smooth. Podcast Smooth. Listening to my voice, you know why I always have Elizabeth say that part of the program. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.